Welcome to Brain and a Vet. We're going to be talking about an excellent philosophical novel by world-renowned literary giant Lionel Shriver. We strongly suggest that you go and buy yourself a copy of this book. It's utterly excellent. Lionel, would you like to tell us what the premise of the book is? Well, in a way, the title poses the premise. <laughs> uh, it's about a couple who, when you first meet them, and are in their early 50s. They're both the employees of the British National Health Service. And uh, the wife's uh, father has just died. And he was in such terrible shape in the latter part of his life from dementia that she finds it difficult even to cry when her own father dies. And this leads to a discussion that you get the impression the husband has meant to bring up for some time. He makes a modest proposal. They've both seen plenty of geriatric patients in states of appalling decline. They've just, uh, they're going through the same thing with their own parents. They don't want to end up like that. Let's go out in style at, at a time of our choosing. And he observes that it's generally at about 80 that it's downhill from there. And so he suggests that they live it up, have a good life, spend their money, and then take a, a painless departure together once the wife has also turned 80 uh, uh, a year after he does. And I mean, that sounds kind of grim, <laughs> but it's a parallel universe book. You, you, you turn the page and then basically they're almost 80. So you have to face down here, you've made a vow. It has a, some good moral basis because one of the things they don't want to do is cost their fellow Britons who are supporting the NHS the money that it would take to sustain them through a long and decayed old age. So it is in some ways a moral resolution, but when you're up against it, do you really follow through? So I set up a series of 12 different scenarios, each exploring a slightly different choice. Obviously, in any number of them, they do not go through with it. Or one of them does, the other doesn't. It's, it's almost mathematical. But towards the end, it, it, gets, it gets into speculative fiction, which I used to read as a teenager. And I think that science fiction is still in my bones. I still think in those terms and it comes to me very easily. So if there's all these parallel universes that split off from the original scenario, then the question that philosophers want to ask is, so what's the right one? So if you're in that scenario, if you personally get to the age of 80 and have to make this decision, what do you do? Well, this is where we get into the difference between philosophers and fiction writers. Fiction writers are big cheats, and there is no commitment by the author to any of these scenarios as being better than any other, although some of them are horrific. So uh, the author is clearly suggesting that the husband's concern at the outset of the book was justified, although there is a great deal more to fear than merely physical decay. Uh, I inflict them with all kinds of horrors. So that is by way of bringing us back to the central question. Should you go through with it or shouldn't you? If you look at all the ways that it could play out, 
was that vow a good idea? And should they therefore have honored it? And that I never answered that question. And it's up to the reader. And the reader doesn't have to answer the question either. I think you might be left with a nagging feeling of what am I going to do about getting really old? And in my case, for example, how do I guarantee that I don't end up the way my mother did? I mean, she had a horrific stroke. I don't know, she would have been in her early 80s, and it was, it was horrible. She was not herself. I don't want to end up like that, and I still haven't figured out how I'm not going to. I've got some of the same genes, some of the same weaknesses. So, so I could very easily end up like her. And I talk about it with my brother all the time, and we haven't figured out a way out. Besides the kind of cutting out early that I propose in the book, and that is very hard to do. So this is not just a philosophical question. It's an emotional question. It's a psychological question. How psychologically realistic is it that any couple that doesn't turn out to have horrible health problems by the age of 80, but, you know, have, there are aches and pains, they have difficulties, but it's not unendurable. Is it realistic to expect such people to sacrifice what good life they might have left in order to escape horrors that remain completely theoretical. So you've used the term vow and this idea that you've made a promise, the couple have made a promise to each other, and maybe they've made a kind of promise to the universe that they're going to commit to doing this. And one of the scenarios that you have is that the wife, Kay, who's a bit reticent, who's a bit uncomfortable about this. And so the idea is suggested to her by her husband and her husband is always struck her as a very principled man. He's describes himself as a socialist. And she takes the obligation seriously and she downs the pills and she's sort of on his lap. And then Cyril feels her dead weight on him. And he thinks, I don't want to be, that seems awful. I don't want to be a corpse. I'm not going through with it. <laughs> and he doesn't kill himself. And the question is, has he done something wrong? It's his mm -hmm. life. In some senses, one thinks that you have total ownership of who you are, but has he wronged himself by failing to meet the obligation that he'd set for himself? And has he wronged his wife? Yes. I, I think that you feel that very keenly as the reader, a sense of being a little torn because you can sympathize with his sudden reluctance to go through with it because it becomes real. <laughs> when his wife is actually dead, then he better understands what he had been proposing. And he, after all, he's the kind of guy who lives a little bit removed from life. He lives in abstraction and therefore has never really embraced the, the gritty biological reality of what he's been proposing all along. Suddenly it's real to him and he feels a rising up in himself of ego. I'm too important. I have more to do with my life. And I'm on the side of the angels. I'm someone who can contribute to society. And he ends up plunging into this self-important memoir. And then your author punishes him, right? So he ends up having a stroke. And one of the consequences of stroke is on occasion, this locked-in syndrome, where you're flat out on the bed, you can't move anything but your eyes. 
and he lives a horribly long time in this condition. It's exactly the kind of thing that he wanted to prevent. And because he didn't kill himself, he doesn't get out of it. So this is an interesting feature of fiction that is often lacking from real life. Also, although sometimes present in real life is that not everyone gets their just desserts in real life, but in fiction, the author can choose to give characters what they deserve. I guess the, the quandary that everyone has is suppose I'm nearing the age of 80 and everything is going fine. And now I have to make a decision as to whether to leave before it goes awry, before I suffer a stroke and get locked in syndrome or whatever it is. It's sort of a wager because you're saying to yourself, well, everything's good so far and it could continue to go well. We could continue to live happy lives hereafter until the day we die, suddenly in the night with a heart attack, or things can go horribly wrong and I can become a burden on others and suffer for the rest of my existence and not have the option to opt out at that point because perhaps my faculties are diminished. So this is the wager. This is the wager we all have. And I think what the book does so well is explore how that wager can act out in all these different ways. But again, the philosopher wants to ask, okay, so now we all face this problem eventually, unless we die prematurely, what do we do? How do we go about choosing? And one of the issues we might ask ourselves is, are there things worse than death? Should that be the basis for determining the wager, the answer to the wager? I think the answer to that question is very simple. It's yes, absolutely. There are lots of things worse than death. And that's why most people who end up opting for killing themselves in age, usually when they're pretty old, or they have a disease that has advanced, most people who kill themselves in those circumstances are in terrible physical pain. And physical pain alone can make you want to die, can make you pray for death. I haven't experienced that degree of physical pain very often in my life, but I did a couple of years ago and it was a shock. And it is astonishing how much pain you're capable of feeling. It is blinding. And I think there is some kind of biological, neurological, psychological process that means you can't remember the experience. It, you can't remember pain. You cannot call it up. It is impossible. You can call up your birthday when you were 10, but you cannot call up pain. It's unavailable. So every time it arrives, it's a big fucking surprise and it's not a happy surprise. So I have every respect for people who come to the point where they can't take it anymore and they will do anything, including leave the building to get out of this agony, which makes it literally difficult to get from one second to another. It slows time down to nothing. So that alone is worse than death. But I pose a, a couple of other futures for my couple that are possibly worse than death. One of the, one of the, that interests me most is the uh, one where they live past a hundred, but of by dint of mass immigration of the likes that we have never seen in Europe in an in-house anarchist movement of young people see future for themselves and are just burning everything down and 
ripping it up. The couple are still in London. I pose the question, if in the, this future that you would live to see, whereby we're really talking about the end of Western civilization, parliament is burned to the ground. The National Gallery's paintings are all shredded. Everything that most Britons would be proud of about their society and identify with has been destroyed. Would you rather live to see it out of, if nothing else, a kind of narrative curiosity? Or would you rather bow out early and at least have the ignorance is bliss experience of not having to face what happened to your own civilization. And that's one of the things that I find interesting about posing that question is that for myself, I can't answer it. I have a lot of that kind of narrative curiosity. Obviously that's my, that what I do for a living is tell stories, but I also follow all kinds of stories uh, in the newspaper, real life stories. I've got a variety of stories on the back burner at any given time. And in fact, there's a point in the book where Cyril asks, where the wife says, she says, I feel as if I'm in the middle of all these novels facing whether they kill themselves. And now I suddenly have to turn them back into the library. And she feels narratively deprived. She wants to know before they know whether Trump is going to be reelected or they're all these things in the air and you want to know what happens. And that's one of the many things that incentivizes living into the future is this involvement in the history of your time, which is unlike any other history being made moment to moment in the time that you're alive. And it provides a lot of content for, I'll speak for myself, it provides a lot of content for me in terms of my experience of my life. Part of what is happening is not just what's personally happening to me, but the story of the larger society and the larger world I'm a part of. And I don't know whether I want to see everything completely fall apart. I mean, for example, let's say, let's say Putin really does start a nuclear war. And let's say it, it, it ends all of life on this planet. Would I be, rather be run over by white van man? <laughs> the day before, or would I want to live through it? So I just think it's really interesting. So I think there's two very interesting things about what you've said. The first is psychologists describe exactly what you've explained here, which is this, what they call the hot, cold empathy gap is when you're in a hot state in a cold state it could be just temperature wise, but it could be in other ways, pain, not in pain, angry, not angry. We react very differently we're in those, when we're in those two states. We feel very differently and we're very different people. And not only do we not have empathy for someone else who's in a different state from ourselves, we don't even have empathy for ourselves in that state. So all you need is a 10-minute gap between you, when you were in agony and when there's no pain and you won't remember what it was like to be in agony and you won't be able to predict how you would have reacted and how you will react in future if you're in agony. So we have this this terrible empathy gap, even for ourselves, never mind for others, when we're not in the state that we're in now. And I think the book, what's so interesting is that you're trying to get people to empathize with these different scenarios for the same character, even though we ourselves can't empathize for ourselves in those different scenarios. 
So that I found very interesting. And the second thing that you talk about, which I find fascinating is it's not just the case that we want to avoid our own personal pain, but we might want to avoid social pain. So the dissolution of society, the burning of parliament, anarchism rising, those seem like things we might want to not survive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I put together a scenario that pained me fantastically. And it's not until the very end of that chapter that it really pains my characters in a literal way, but they are in pain nonetheless. They are in a social agony, seeing everything that they care about destroyed. And that is an agony that I identify with and, and sympathize with. So this attack on Western civilization, I think, feels quite real for us in South Africa because we've had the University of Cape Town's library burned down. We've had art grabbed from the walls and destroyed. Mm. Part of parliament burned in South Africa as well, often under mysterious circumstances, but celebrated by radical elements. Left-wing political parties have said, this is wonderful. We need to destroy this colonial empire so that we can rise afresh from the ashes of empire. Mm. And obviously in the States and the UK, there've been attacks on various uh, statues of people that are viewed as coming from a colonial era or an old order. And I like how you play that out to say, well, just let's see where this goes. Can you mm. live with the idea of these national treasures being destroyed? Would this really be a good thing? And what's entertaining about it as well is that you have Cyril the Socialist sort of saying, well, isn't it wonderful that we have all of these people who are being welcomed onto our shores? And you have this lying about numbers about how many people are actually on those shores and a sort of guilt about, well, we have so much as, as Londoners, shouldn't we be sharing the wealth that we have with you know all of these people from Syria and from Africa. And you have a scenario where you see how badly that ends for them and for that society. But then you play another scenario where you say, actually globalization is wonderful and maybe Africa will prosper very well. And to sort of have both sides of that, that debate canvassed in, in the novel, um, I think allows us to sort of think about the arguments on both sides. And that's what good philosophical fiction should be doing. Well, yeah, I'm glad you picked that up. I, I think there's a kind of balance there. Both those scenarios are over the top <clears throat> purposefully, but yeah, for example, in the ludicrously optimistic fairy tale chapter of Africa thrives, the diaspora comes back, it's a tech hub and it's, and in, also it's a kind of admission by the author, the author does not know the future. We're constantly projecting onto the future, but we don't know it. And it's always good to catch yourself on and think, all right, well, you, I know what you're afraid of, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. One of the biggest debates amongst philosophers is the free will determinism debate. So basically it's the question, do we have free choice or are our actions predetermined or does it matter whether our actions are predetermined? Well, whether we have free choice, perhaps we have free choice, even if our actions are predetermined. And in any parallel universe setup, especially like this one, where you've got all these branching lines that the story could take, the question we ask is, so could all of them happen? In philosophical terms, we might say that's a libertarian future, not in a political sense, but in a philosophical sense, that the K's choices and Cyril's choices are not predetermined. They can do whatever they want. And in virtue of that, they're free. Or is there a particular line that they have to take? I'm assuming you, you don't want to say that. You want to say that it could have turned out any which way. 
There's a particular section which struck me where uh, Kay's thinking, Cyril asked, so, so were you ever going to go through with this choice in one of these futures where she chooses not to commit suicide? And she says, well, this morning I thought so I was going to go through with it. I almost did. And of course, in other futures, she does. So the question is, does she have free will or, or is there a particular route that she would have to take? Of course, the, the book doesn't precisely take a position on the free will question. But it, there is a consistent thread through the text that derides the whole notion of making plans about anything. So it's about a couple that has made a plan. And there is a lot of authorial doubt cast on any plans working out the way you thought. And probably the best example, it's one of the shortest chapters, is when Kay said, when, you know, the, the, the very night that they were supposed to do it, Kay said, this is ridiculous. Forget it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the leftovers away in the refrigerator. <laughs> and Cyril's like, mm -hmm. he's, he's had his toy taken away. But then they both get up in the next morning and and have a nice breakfast, and they're both happy to be alive. And Kay uh, goes out to the mailbox and is run over by a guy in a white van, uh, and, and she's dead. So it's. <laughs> would just mean, but um, on my part. But at the same time, there's a, almost a feeling in that one of that that spiritual or mystic thing, she was fated to die anyway, right? She had a fate, she couldn't get out of it. And I don't say that per se, but it's basically written comically, but that's the suggestion. So it's a book that plays with a lot of different relationships to free will because the the decisions that the characters make don't always determine what happens to them. So when we think about these parallel universes, you do a wonderful job of hinting between universes. So there'll be certain aspects of a character that come out in the one that are then explored in another. So the black sheep of the family, Roy, in the sort of dystopic world takes full advantage and you say really blossoms in the sense that he starts people trading basically in this very obnoxious way but then in the fairy tale version he sets up a place of refuge um, for people who are in great need and so you get the sense of how there's a a golden thread between these two characters in these different parallel states and i wondered how you see them should we see them as consistent characters throughout are they clones of each other in these parallel universes? Are they related to each other? And also, how do we care about them throughout? The traditional structure of a story is that there are stakes for that set of people. But here, it's okay, they died in this one, but they get reborn in the next chapter. So how does that narrative tension play out for us? Well, I'm hoping the book works in relation to character by building a character in the round. It, it it portrays these characters in many different circumstances, and those circumstances bring out different aspects of themselves. For example, there's a chapter in which there's suddenly a cure for aging, and everyone basically lives forever, which is also another good philosophical supposition. How does that work? But 
one of the fun things for me in that chapter is not just exploring the uh, ups and downsides of eternal life, but also watching how as time goes on and on, the couple who managed to stay together unlike just about everybody else. I mean, people are starting to be married like a hundred times. <laughs> they almost swap places as characters. And Kay, the wife, becomes irritable and short and impatient and more existentially uneasy and unsatisfied. And Cyril becomes much more philosophical, more patient, more understanding, much less caught up in his abstract commitments. Enough time goes by that he realizes that he was only, he was only attached to socialism out of his own self-regard. And this is a really fun thing for a fiction writer because it's in some ways pushing the limits of what character is. Who are we? How much do we have the capacity to change? And as a person, as opposed to a writer, I don't see people changing all that much. So I tend to be cynical on that point. But in fiction, we really enjoy watching people change, maybe because we don't see it very much in real life. But so that, it, that I can make these characters fuller and richer over the course of putting them in completely different circumstances over and over again. And so I think you do build an attachment to them and they become more interested as they become capable of being very different from the way they started out, which would have been smaller and more closed and more, more strictly defined. And uh, if you take a look at, uh, fantastically te uh, successful television that runs a long time, like Breaking Bad. What made that show was that the characters changed and changed fantastically. So that by the end, Walter White is almost the opposite of what he was at the very beginning of the show. Anything but meek and browbeaten, for example. So I got to explore that in a more playful format, in some ways a less expansive format. It's more, much more condensed. And I do actually think that in that process, again, I'm posing what are really very philosophical questions about what is a person? What does it mean to be, have a personality? Would you be the same person if you grew up in very different circumstances? To what degree are you a, a result of those circumstances? And those are questions that fiction inevitably poses whether or not all fiction writers are aware of it. One of the questions we love to play with on this show is the meaning of life. So every philosopher with his salt has to chat about the meaning of life. So one of the questions which comes up, especially through going through these different iterations, these different futures is where do the characters find meaning? I mean, one possible answer might be in their growth. So in changing, for example, in the future you just described now with where Cyril becomes more philosophical. He gains awareness, self-awareness of his reasons for being a socialist. He understands life better. It seems he's gained some meaning through that process. In other scenarios, it seems like meaning happens through self-determination where the wife Kay, she decides, no, this is nonsense. And I'm not just going to go along with whatever Cyril says, and I'm going to pursue what I want. That seems to be meaningful for her. So 
I wonder whether there's a, a thread running through these different futures where you have a certain conception of what you think meaning is or why it's worth carrying on. Well, there's never an answer to that question. You don't just find meaning and keep it. It's something that you have to find almost from moment to moment. It's something you have to recreate for yourself over and over again. It's a job that's never done. And clearly, one of the things the book is doing is building not just the two separate characters, but their relationship to each other. And that is where they find meaning most intensely, I think. Uh, they both clearly got meaning from their work, which means there's, there is the threat of emptiness when they're retired. Uh, though I make it clear that Cyril gets more of a sense of meaning from his work than she does. She didn't mind retiring. She changed in many of these scenarios. She quits the NHS early and establishes her own interior design business and therefore explores a whole new side of herself. And in that scenario, Cyril feels left out, right? That he doesn't have this extra creative realm that, that she discovers and she clearly changes in ways that makes her a little bit more alien to him. But I find that the meaning thing most interesting and most pointed in the chapter that presupposes we all have eternal life. And what comes out of that is that as this infinite amount of time goes on and on, everything wears out. Every source of meaning wears out. Sex, forms of identity, people end up swapping races back and forth. Everything gets boring. Everyone tries practically every career there is. And eventually it's like, well, what do I want to do with my life? Once you can answer that in an infinite a number of ways, then it doesn't have an answer. So everything goes to rubbish and they've gone to every country in the world. And the only thing to do is to go to every country in the world all over again. And Cyril doesn't want to, cause he doesn't actually like travel. I mean, it, it was a, it, at the same time, we can't help but ask why on earth, if any of these pursuits, the way we spend our time and get meaning or, or ordinarily, why are they so dependent on mortality to work? Why would they wear out if they are intrinsically meaning generating? Why is that not enough? But there does seem to be something about finitude that is a requirement for meaning. I mean, that's what gives our lives urgency. And that's what makes the decisions we make in our lives seem important because we don't get to make them again. You can never decide to lead your 33rd year differently than you did when you turned 34. It's over. That's what you did. And that seems like a drag, but at the same time, it is also what makes your 33rd year important. There's only one way to spend it. You make a set of decisions. That's what you did with it. And if you could just do that over and over again, it wouldn't matter. And every decision could be redone. 
So one of the things that's so clever about that world of immortality is everyone has eternal youth to a point where everyone then looks the same so that young children are prized because they're so rare and they realize that there's a limit on how many people we could have on a planet where no one dies, so almost no one reproduces. And the other thing that I really like is that you have the sense of perspective in that section. So things like Brexit and COVID all sort of seem rather silly when you sort of have this uh, fountain of eternal youth. And I think often throughout, throughout the book, you look at the issues of the day with the sense of distance, even though we're not very far away from Brexit, Trump and COVID, you sort of say, really, are these things that important? And I think you sort of say, maybe not as much as we'd thought. But the stuff that's also really good is you play around with taboo. So you have, as you say, Kay and Cyril both recreationally change sex just to know what it would be like to stand while peeing up. And then they change race as well. And you play with this idea that initially people are quite upset. They see it as a form of cultural appropriation. <laughs> but then it becomes very hard to distinguish who's really from Jamaica and who's just changed their race. And in some senses, then the whole notion of race falls away. And when yes. people talk about racing, it sounds like racing cars. And that's the kind of only notion that it has. And so one of our good friends on the show, Rebecca Tuval, endured enormous amounts of public persecution because she wrote a paper on transracialism, this idea that some people would like to change their race and that we uh, ought to treat them with dignity in the same way that we do people who are transgendered, that we don't persecute them and call them liars. And of course, for taking a view like this, she was called a racist and a transphobe. And I read her that extract from your book and she found it absolutely delightful. There's one line in there that always makes me laugh out loud, no matter how many times I, I have read it. I liked turning the whole thing of gender and the race into an entertainment, right? And because I am sick of everything being racialized and I'm sick of our consuming obsession with gender. When I grew up in a generation, we were trying to get away from sexual stereotypes and, and just look at everyone as people. That's an old fashioned view, but I consider the current popular view retrograde. And I think, as you say, we've lost the sense of humor that the most dangerous job that you can have nowadays is being a comedian. Someone might mm. come up and punch you on stage because they don't like the, the joke that you made. And I think traditionally the idea of being able to explore dangerous ideas with a pinch of humor got you out of it. I saw you talk recently when you were in Johannesburg and you said you've survived three cancellation attempts and you're not so sure if you'll survive a fourth. Do you think it's become a dangerous time for those who write fiction to really fully explore the ideas that they'd like to and the right characters of their choosing? I mean, yes, it, it, it is a dangerous time to write fiction. If you're not dedicated to supporting the left, and even if you're on the left, you're not safe. I mean, this was not a, a case of fiction so much as a memoir, but there was a teacher in, in the UK that published a memoir to great acclaim. It was an award-winning book, but well after the fact of its publication, it was some women decided that it used ways of describing other ethnicities and races in a way that didn't absolutely perfectly toe the line in terms of what the ostensible rules are. And it turned into a huge hoo-ha, which ended finally in her leaving her publisher and, and they pulped all her books. Oh, it was just, it was outrageous. But this was a person from the left. The author was totally left-wing. 
The book was about teaching a heavily diverse group of students and about how great they were and how much they taught her more than she taught them. For them to come after this woman is just insane and means that not only is no one safe, but there's actually no point in trying to please. So I don't try. It, it just backfires anyway. So I do whatever I want and I write whatever I want. But most of my colleagues in literature, as opposed to in journalism, are all of a left-wing disposition. And therefore, they fall into the camp of trying to please. And they take these rules seriously. Oh, you cannot use food words to describe someone's skin color. That's somehow implicitly insulting. I don't know where they get this stuff. It really, it motivates me to use food words to describe people's skin color <laughs> because the rules are ridiculous. They keep making more of them every year. And, and at a certain point, I just say, I feel like Alice, you're all a pack of cards. And this is the absurdity of the situation is that the intentions don't matter. So even if you're trying, as you say, to write a book where there's a diverse cast and the students are teaching the teacher, et cetera, and you try and follow all the correct tropes and you try and get everything right. And you really have the best of intentions of towing the line. If you just get one nuance wrong in a totally unpredictable way. So if one reader takes offense at one element that you could never have predicted, and then it starts a ripple and a wave and it becomes a cancellation, then you're in just as much trouble as if you hadn't wanted to toe the line in the first place. So it, it really does seem like an impossible position that authors are in when they're trying to not be canceled. You can't try to not be canceled. I mean, that's the mistake is to even be motivated in that direction. Forget it, right? You're dealing with a, a set of critics who want to find fault. That is their primary motivation. So you can't please people like that. They will always find something wrong because that's what they do. That is their purpose. That is what gets them off. So give it up. And I've at least carved out a little niche for myself. I don't agree with them already. They know I don't obey the rules already. It's, it's, it's a waste of time to go for me. The, the left seems to be enjoying eating its own far more than eating the other side these days. So the, there's, an, there's a funny kind of protection in now being regarded as some kind of right-wing, retrograde lunatic. So, so <laughs> I, I wanted to ask about this notion that you talked about how your personal political views trickle into the story and your primary motivation is entertainment. So you use these issues like gender-based issues, race-based issues in an entertaining way. I'm curious, is there a good, is there a correct balance? So for, is there, so, so let's imagine two types of books, one on either end of the spectrum, one where there's not a trickle of political views of the author, but there's a flood. So from mm -hmm. beginning to end, it's just didactic and it really just tries to push a certain political agenda. And then let's imagine another book on the other side, which includes no political agenda whatsoever. It's entirely neutral and you just cannot guess the author's view. Mm. Is, is there a right way to write a novel? In other words, is one better than the other? Or is there some in-between point that's the optimal point to write? No, I mean, I'm not big on rules about anything, especially anything to do with fiction. 
the fun thing about a novel is that its purpose is whatever you want and its form is whatever you want and you can please yourself. So if you want to write a book that is didactic and very obvious of pushing its point home with a sledgehammer, go ahead. Now, there's going to be a, a, a certain proportion of your prospective audience that may be turned off by that decision. And, but if that's the book you want to write and it satisfies you, fine. I mean, I hope I don't usually opt to go exactly that direction. And I like include, if I am going to have political content in my book, then I make some effort to have a dialogue within it rather than it just being a preachy sermon. I think that's better reading. It, it's intellectually more challenging to write that. And after all, I, I write a lot of di literal dialogue. It's, it's, that's the kind of book I like reading anyway. And it's the kind I like writing. So, and, and literal dialogue makes it possible to have people of diametrically opposed positions of giving it their best shot. And I like that. I like reading that and I enjoy writing that and I enjoy giving voice to a, a, a position that I disagree with. And clearly one of the, one of the issues I, I play with the, the most is Brexit, but especially from a perspective of pulled, as you noted, pulled back, because I think some of the best nonfiction work I've done on Brexit has been calling attention to the fact that it's not nearly as important as everyone is pretending. So it doesn't matter that much, not to the EU and not to Britain. So this has been an entertainment. And therefore the dialogue in the book that's about Brexit, and I hope there's not too much of it, because secretly the husband and wife disagree and voted differently. But, you know, they both get their say. And because the position is pulled back, the book really doesn't care about whether or not Brexit was right or not. It really doesn't care. And therefore, it's purely a question of character. What does it say about Kay that at the last minute, without telling her husband, she voted leave? Yeah, and then never told him. What does that say about their relationship? That's really more interesting. And the actual argument over whether or not the UK should leave the European Union is is bagatelle. It's not any of the substance of the fiction. And that's really fun for me. And ultimately, my experience of the, the, real, the real referendum and the blowback afterwards was also most interesting in terms of what it said about people and what they were like. It was one of those circumstances, as in the book, that you put people in. Let's see what this brings out in them. And it was really fascinating to, especially the Remainers. I mean, they really became horrible people. And that was, and that was on TV every night. Contemptuous, superior, disgusted, really hateful toward half their own country. Now, obviously losing never brings out the best in people, but they so expected to win and they were so convinced of the righteousness of their cause it was grotesque. As a psychological spectacle, it was riveting. And you play with this notion of how deep their commitments are to democracy. So that after losing, they all said, we want another go. 
<laughs> can't right. we have another vote? The stupid people voted the wrong direction and those people can't be trusted. And they're elderly people anyway, so they're going to die soon. So we uh -huh. shouldn't have counted their votes. We should have had more votes for the 16-year-olds the because they're going to have to live with this horrible decision that these old fucks made at our expense. And so they said, throw out democracy as a principle. Let's do this again. No binding decisions. And I think that's an interesting thing to play with. The other bit of the book that I think you do so well is you play around with cryogenics. And Jason and I have had someone who's written a philosophical treatise on cryogenics. And you come up with a, I thought, quite a novel interpretation, which is it might take much longer than you expect to get mm -hmm. unthawed. And this will have a couple of consequences. The one is the couple wind up at a time where they can both be cured of the ailments that they have, but they don't recognize it. A different language is spoken, that humanity has evolved dramatically. There are eight-foot people who are uh, a kind of hive mind, some sort of genuine socialism, and they're alienated from this. And there's also a sense in which they have what you describe as freezer burn, that they've lost something of themselves. And you have this wonderful line where you say, they're like something that's been photocopied 10 times over and there's an essence that's gone and they struggle to know themselves and know each other. And I thought playing with that future possibility of what would it be like to survive and have to confront this alien landscape, would that be a life worth living? Yeah, they have been removed from everything that they have ties to aside from each other. And then it turns out that even that tie has not lasted. It's the saddest chapter in the book. It's the one chapter that feels truly tragic. And, and you have to wonder wh what kind of a life remains to them. And it's a reminder that what we are is partially a, an accumulation of attachments, of social connections, of past experience, that that your sense of yourself is also to do with your connections to the outside world. It's, it's, you are not entirely yourself if you've lived a normal life, if you're just in, in, in a closet forever. And in some ways, this is that I put them in a situation that they cannot access. They're, they're not likely to learn the language. The people who are scornful of them because they are lower life forms. There's even physically stunted. They look like little dwarves and the new society has contempt for them. They're, they think in horrible old fashioned ways. These are people who had wars. And so there's the, not having that context anymore. They're all, their family is long dead. Even if they were to trace them relatives, they wouldn't want to hear from them because they'd be so many generations removed. And it would be like this horrible little creature coming after me, get away from me. So they're genuinely naked. They're almost newborn and in a context where they, they will not thrive. They, they caught death, right? So it's, that's the one chapter that I think is genuinely bleak and heartbreaking and it's called love doesn't freeze because the one thing that the one thing that remains constant through the book is their relationship now they fight plenty and they have all sorts of differences but that they they are married that they are going to stay married is never in doubt they 
clearly have a symbiotic relationship to each other. That is the only chapter in which the relationship doesn't make it. And I, and you were talking about sources of meaning and that for the book, that is their central source of meaning and I destroy it and it's awful. So that one chapter, I think it's very interesting, but it's awful. Then the value of life is quite tenuous. It's threatened in various ways. So the one is personal pain. The other is social discord. And a third is just a lack of context that you can connect with. So a society around you that you feel that you're not alienated from, where they speak the same language of, as you at least, that they look like you, that they can, that you can relate to that society around you. And if any of these features is absent, then the value of life diminishes and maybe disappears. Well, yeah, one of the issues that we have trouble talking about in relation to mass immigration is that what you are allowing is a gradual erosion of a familiar landscape of the what your neighbors look like, what your countrymen look like, your sense of your yourself and of your nation. The and when that kind of transformation happens very fast. There's a sense of loss, and I've tried to write about this, and it, it is just the one thing you cannot say. It is undiscussable. You cannot talk about rising diversity as a loss. It's only gain. It's wonderful. The restaurants are great, and it makes us feel good about ourselves because we accept everyone, and we're very inclusive, and we're going to be even more inclusive in the future, and it's just going to get better and better. And of course, in the United States especially, you've got people who think that the not only is it going to get better and better, but all the white people are going to go away and then we're going to have a utopia. Well, I've got a problem with this narrative and I am sympathetic with the native populations who are gradually being, and not so gradually, losing market share, if you will, and are not allowed to say anything about how they feel are only allowed to feel good about it. And uh, one of the cancellation columns was about this very subject in which I noted that all over the world, because this is human nature, you had majority populations that experience a sudden and enormous inflow of people from somewhere else and the majority populations don't like it. And they never do. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with race. I mean, in South Africa, I know there's been a lot of uh, resentment of immigrants from Zimbabwe among the black population. They're both black. What's the problem? Because they're from Zimbabwe. The same deal between the people from Ghana in Nigeria. Colombia has had this inundation of people from Venezuela, and there's a lot of resentment there too. That's a huge economic burden and also different country. You shouldn't be our problem. Even Mexico has pockets of American retirees who have taken over the coasts and raised property prices and brought little America to parts of Mexico. And with no self-consciousness, the locals are resentful and want them to go home. So. This is what people are like. And yet we have told the West alone, 
You can't complain about it. If you've got any problem with it, you're a racist. So put a lid on it. You're just supposed to celebrate your own diminishment. And that's unnatural. Now, you can imagine how much trouble I got in for that. I think it's a very interesting perspective because it's not just locating the debate between pro-immigration or anti-immigration. It's trying to explicate the consequences for mass immigration. And one of them is that the very value of my existence as a native in the country where immigration into the, to the country happens could be undermined. And in, in decisions like whether I should continue to exist, whether I should end my life or not, that could be informed by immigration policy. So it's a way of making the immigration issue very live in terms of people's lives. Throughout the novel, you have these various parallels. So you can talk about a change within Britain, but you can also talk about a change within someone's mind. And the, the catalyst for this idea of the suicide pact is Kay watching her father die of dementia that he slowly loses who he is. That's particularly poignant for me because uh, I'm a lawyer and my uncle died of Alzheimer's. Mm. And he was an incredibly bright guy and sort of slowly watching someone lose themselves is a tough thing to see. And you tell the story in two ways. The one is Kay watching this happen to her father and how much of an awful effect it has on her and why she sort of signs up for the death pact. But then also you have an iteration where it, it happens to her and we see the world through her eyes, and through her eyes, things are pleasant. You have a scene where she's smearing herself in feces, not knowing what it is, but is sort of amused by the smell it has and what it does to her face and her hair, and everyone else is recoiling in horror. And so I wonder what your view is then on, she talks about dying in degrees and why dying in degrees would be bad. Do you think that's what goes on with Alzheimer's, that we die in degrees? Is there a point where you are no longer who you once were and you're dead and some kind of physical body takes over or some remnant of you takes over, but you know, who you were is gone. Well, none of us who still have our full capacities know what it is like to be demented. And I can exercise my imagination, but I don't know what it's like. And I sense also, given the many different demeanors that people with Alzheimer's assume, that it's not the same for everyone. And I was trying to allow for the possibility that however horrified we are about facing that kind of a fate for ourselves, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's a relief. Maybe you have removed from you yourself all the anxieties that you live with and are free to just experience the world as it comes at you in color and shape and everything's new and amusing because you can't remember anything. <laughs> and then therefore in being so fresh, just the texture of this computer here and the color of the wall and the tree wafting outside, it's all amazing. It's amazing. Well, this sounds great. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's very clear in that chapter that being around K for other people is a nightmare. But maybe being the person who is away with fairies isn't necessarily a, a, a condition of hollowness or endless suffering. 